Capital Airlines' Vickers Viscount is flying to Baltimore, but it never makes it to its destination. What caused this flight to suddenly drop from radar? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And I'm sorry if you hear a purring cat. She's, she's as all, always. She's all up in my business, and she's right here making noise. Yeah, you can kind of <laughs> hear it. Um, we're also recording the day after the episode from last week. So We got no new, no new stuff. Nothing has happened. It got like 60 degrees colder here. Oh, so it got so cold today. That's what happened. It went from like seventy yesterday to oh, a wind chill of sixteen. It feels degrees. like sixteen here. It's the worst. So, yeah, it's it's cold. We're in PJs and slippers and warm stuff. <laughs> Happy birthday to our patron and friend from last episode, Kaylin. Yes, thanks, thanks Kaylin. Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Yeah, happy post. Christmas holidays stuff, but pre New Year's. Also, January listener episodes, since this comes out the last week of December. Oh, yeah. What are we doing? I mean, maybe starting new adventures. Yeah, yeah. that's probably a good one because yeah. I get to start a new adventure in January. So. Yeah. So tell us when uh, a story of when you started a new adventure. Yeah. I feel like that's good for like, you know, New Year's and like New Year, New Me. It's kind of, of New Year resolution y. Yeah. Kind of. Just tell us something new, something new that you did, something, a new experience you had, a new adventure, something. Etc. Tell, tell us something new. There we go. And if not that, then tell us anything at all. Right. You can always tell <laughs> us anything at all, and we'll use it anyway. Yes. All right. Uh, I think that's it for housekeeping. So, what are we covering today, Nick? Today will be a short episode, but we are covering Capital Airlines Flight 300. Thank you to our patron, Rich, for recommending this episode. Yes, thank you, Rich. This happened on May 20th of 1959, so this is an oldie. And not necessarily a goodie. I was going to say. <laughs> but we were talking about an airplane we have talked about before, which is interesting because it's not also a very common airplane. It was the Vickers Viscount. So we're talking about another Vickers Viscount. I think we talked about one before. Yes. Yes. I don't even remember what it was. I don't <laughs> either. Shows you how common they are. <laughs> and how much they mattered. They're a smaller airplane. They are a quad prop, so they actually have four engines, but they were pretty small. They were more... Oh, you didn't talk about it. She talked about we it. We talked about it. Oh, okay. It was one of the bird strikes. Oh! That's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyways, so this is a quad prop. It's a smaller airplane. It was mainly used for shorter routes. So this one had the tail number November 7410. This was a flight from Chicago to Pittsburgh to Baltimore. The captain for today's flight was Kendall J. Brady. He was 38 years old. He had 12,719 hours total, which for 38 years old, good for you. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty good. good. He had 1,432 hours on the Viscount. Well, and this happened in the 1950s? Yep. So that's like pretty impressive, I feel like. Yeah, he was, he was pretty good on time. The first officer was Paul F. Meyer. He was 26 years old. Wow, that just makes me feel... Wow, right. that's your age. <laughs> <laughs> he was, he had 2,467 hours at the time, of which 1,596 hours were on the Viscount. So this was before all the whole 1,500 rule. 
He still had more than 1,500, though. He had more than 1,500, but at the time that he started flying the Viscount, he had less than 1,000. So, yeah, that's a thing. The flight from Chicago to Pittsburgh was uneventful. The aircraft Thanks. was... Yep. The aircraft was loaded and dispatched at Pittsburgh. They took off from Pittsburgh at 10.50 a.m. with seven passengers and four crew. Wow. <laughs> like I said, not very big. They weren't full either. They were flying on an IFR, or Instrument Flight Rules, flight plan. They were to cruise at 11,000 feet to the Millsboro intersection, then on to Baltimore via the Victor Airway 92 and Victor Airway 44. At 11.15 a.m., as the flight was crossing the Grantsville intersection on their flight plan, the flight contacted the, Air, the Washington Air Route Traffic Control Center, or ARTCC, to report their position and estimated passing Martinsburg at 11.27 a.m. So, basically, they told the air route traffic controller, like, here we are currently, and here's where we're going to be at Martinsburg at, at 11.27 a.m. is our planned passing time. The air traffic controller acknowledged this and noted, that, and noted this report down on the flight strip. At 11.24 a.m., the air traffic controller cleared the flight to the Lisbon intersection, and to descend and maintain 7,000 feet. Two minutes later, the flight reported being over the Martinsburg intersection and descending through 10,000 feet. They estimated they would arrive at Baltimore at 11.39 a.m. at the time. That's what they told the air traffic controller. At that time, the air traffic controller was able to establish radar contact with the flight, so... They were on radar. Now they were on radar. 41 seconds later, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to descend to 5,000 feet to cross the Sugarloaf intersection. <laughs> Sugarloaf. Sugarloaf. Lol. Lol. 11.26 a.m. and 48 seconds. The flight crew acknowledged the clearance and reported that they were descending through 9,000 feet. This was the last time that they would be heard from. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. A short time later, the air traffic controller noted something strange about their blip on the radar. He then requested their altitude over the radio, but, they re but then he received no response from the flight. This call was made three minutes and 30 seconds after the flight reported being over Martinsburg. The air traffic controller then noted that the aircraft radar target appeared to be standing still for about a minute before fading from the radar. That's weird. Yep, not a good thing, obviously. So now, let's change things a little bit. Meanwhile, while all of that was happening... And this is where Miranda figures out exactly what I happened. I kind of already <laughs> figured it out because of what you said earlier, but yeah. That's okay. Captain J.R. McCoy of the Maryland Air National Guard had arrived at the Martin Airport earlier that same day. Yep. <laughs> he had planned in the days prior to meet up with another Air National Guard member to go on a familiarization flight in his T-33 military trainer jet in the local flying area. So T-33 is literally just a trainer jet for the military. Right. Um, in this case, for the Air National Guard. So it's a pretty simple jet. Uh, it's got a canopy. It's got one person forward, one person behind. And it's not a very powerful jet by any means, but it's still a jet. It maneuvers like a fighter jet, things like that. It's just kind of an easy transition from learning to fly at speed in, say, a prop plane right. or a basic jet to Transferring to high a fighter speed. jet, yeah. Yeah. Because that's like a big jump. Yes. So you need something intermediary because fighter jets yeah. experience a lot of Gs. Right. Like a lot, a lot of Gs. So basically there was, and this still exists, but they make these trainer jets that 
aren't super high speed by any means. Actually, they're pretty regular in terms of speed related to similar aircraft in its category. So, like, it would probably perform pretty similar to any kind of private or business jet. But it does have maneuverability on its side. So it teaches you to kind of behave and do maneuvers like you would in a fighter jet. Right. So anyways, he was planning on taking a passenger up to familiarize him with the T-33, another Air National Guard member. The passenger arrived at the field while McCoy was preparing the aircraft for flight. He then briefed his passenger on all of the necessary information for the flight, including emergency procedures, how to, you know, escape the airplane, how to how the airplane will behave, where they're going to go, things like that. He then filed a local VFR clearance, not a flight plan, a clearance, just saying we're going to be up there flying around at speed, and received weather from the local U.S. Weather Bureau facility in Baltimore which reported overcast at 5,500 feet. What? We'll talk about it. <laughs> I know. That was very delayed. <laughs> oh, no. I put another zero in my head, and I was like... 5,500. Not that I'm, Not 55,000. <laughs> which, <laughs> which isn't even the confusing thing, because we'll talk about... But anyways. Mind you, he said overcast. overcast. And he filed a VFR flight. Not flight clearance. Not plan, but clearance. Yes. Visual conditions. Yes. Which... We'll talk about. Yeah, listen. I'm not saying people are smart. I'm just saying... To be fair, he actually didn't do anything wrong there. We'll talk about it. They then took off from runway 14 at Martin Airport at 11.07 a.m. They flew south, climbing through 3,000 feet. They continued south to around the Gibson Island area on Chesapeake Bay, remaining below the overcast though all, through all of that. They then turned westerly passing north of Washington, D.C., that is, and south of the Friendship Airport over to Leesburg, Virginia. In the Washington area, the clouds were up higher at 10,000 feet, so now they're well below the clouds. They varied in altitude during their flight, and their course also varied throughout the flight, as they were flying VFR, and this is regular practice. Even to this day, I mean, if you're VFR, as long as you're following the rules for the airspace... You can do this. You can vary your altitude and your course. But it is a safer thing to do to try to remain at a specific altitude as much as possible. That way you can kind of track. And you got to make sure you're keeping your eye out, too. Of course. Because if you're going to fly VFR, you need to make sure that you are keeping an eye out for other airplanes. Especially if you are in a military aircraft, because they are not usually seen on radar. Yes. This is called foreshadowing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And on top of that, I mean, this is, you're talking about VFR conditions is number one rule is see and avoid. Yes. This is foreshadowing. Yep. Which I kind of, I've kind of figured out was probably the problem here. So we're going to keep going. (laughs) They descended from 8,000 feet down to 5,000 feet around Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, in order for the passenger to photograph the scenery in that area. They made a left turn at Harper's Ferry at 5,000 feet to head back east toward Baltimore via Frederick, Maryland. They began a slow climb. They crossed through 8,000 feet. At that moment, they were suddenly shaken violently, and the airplane seemingly exploded underneath them. McCoy was thrown free from the T-33, the captain, was thrown free from the T-33, which was falling in flames toward the ground. McCoy was equipped with a parachute, luckily, and was 
able to deploy it moments later. He doesn't actually remember doing that. He landed on the ground and walked to a nearby farmhouse for help to be taken to the hospital. McCoy arrived at the hospital, and it was at that time that he was informed that he had been involved in a mid-air collision, as you probably guessed by now. Yeah. <laughs> his aircraft had plummeted to the ground on fire and crashed hard, killing his passenger, unfortunately. how? Wait, I'm sorry. I was, like, too distracted by the noise. Mm -hmm. How did he make it to the ground? Did he have a parachute? Yep, he had a parachute. Oh, okay. He deployed it moments later. He doesn't even actually remember himself pulling the parachute. It might have just been, like, second nature. Which it pretty much was, probably. Good on him, because that <clears throat> yeah. saved his life. Yep. He doesn't even remember, like, leaving the airplane. It just happened so fast, he was suddenly out in space, pulled the ripcord, and he was falling. It also may be that his brain registered what was happening, but then made him forget, because that's traumatic. Very much could have been. Yeah, because that's what happens, fun fact, when something really traumatic happens. Yep. The Viscount that they had collided with was struck across the top of the fuselage, and the airplane pitched up hard, slowing dramatically before rolling over to one side, initiating a spin that quickly turned into a flat spin to the ground, which is the worst kind of spin imaginable. A flat spin is where literally the bell of the airplane is pointed down, but the airplane is still spiraling flat. So it's not moving forward in any direction, right. and it's not pointed nose down, where you could potentially get airspeed under the wings and recover. In this case, it's falling flat, so there's no aerodynamic help at all. Yeah, it's the airplane's just, just giant falling. paperweight, yeah. Yep. The airplane's falling in a flat spin. It impacted a field hard on its belly. All 11 on board the Viscount perished in the crash. The wreckage of both aircraft was scattered over a large area, about one mile by one and a half mile. It was all scattered across a field four miles northeast of Brunswick, the town of Brunswick. The main portion of the Viscount broke up and burned in a large fire upon hitting the ground. The number one and number two engines were running normally on impact, but the number three and number four engines appeared to have impacted impact damage from striking metal, a metal object, before striking the ground. In other words, the, the other, airplane, other airplane, as well as the fuselage of the Viscount itself, actually. Oof. Yep. The Viscount left a trail of debris about 4,500 feet long, in a direction from west to east. The tail assembly had separated from the fuselage and was sitting separately. The T-33 had disintegrated in midair, meanwhile. So yeah. not much of it actually made it to the ground in one piece. That said, the canopy had shattered in flight and the main portion of the T-33, the cabin, had impacted the ground inverted. Oh. So where the passenger was, it had fallen flat. On the cabin. Oh. Uh, I don't even want to think about that image. Yep. Oh. That's all I have for wreckage. They're, they went into a lot of detail about what ended up where, but that's really kind of the summary of how bad this ended up being. So there's only one survivor, and it was the captain of the T-33. I only figured out that this was a mid-air collision because you earlier said, I'm doing my part in two parts. Yes. I didn't get it at the time. Then you're halfway through your story, and I'm like, oh, shit. Mm -hmm. It's a yep. mid-air collision. <laughs> it is. That's uh -huh. the only reason it has two parts. That being said, this investigation was performed by the CAB. Yeah, because yeah. this is the 50s. <laughs> um, for those of you who are new here, that was the Civil Aeronautics Board. They were the predecessors of today's NTSB. 
and much of their flight information came from interviews with Washington Center, which was the Air Route Traffic Control Center, who last spoke with the Viscount, as well as interviews with Captain, Captain. McCoy, the sole survivor. But Captain McCoy had no idea what happened and just thought his plane exploded until he made it to the hospital. He didn't recall how he managed to get out and deploy his parachute, and it wasn't until he was told otherwise that what really happened. And people saw it happen, which is how. That's horrifying. Yes. Witnesses reported that the aircraft were flying parallel easterly headings, neither climbing nor descending, but the T-33 was flying much faster and overtaking the Viscount. The T-33 then turned slightly to the right and struck the forward part of the Viscount, at which time there was a small explosion. The aircraft then separated, and the T-33 continued on its original path for a short while before exploding. The Viscount pulled up, stalled, then spun toward the ground in a spin until impact. This sequence was confirmed by the damage found in the wreckage. The initial contact was between the T-33's right tip tank and the left side of the Viscount fuselage. Now, for those of you who don't know what a T-33 is, which is uh, many of us, it has kind of a bulb on its wingtip. Yeah, we call them tip tanks. So, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have these... They actually look kind of like bombs mounted to the ends of the wings. Yes, they do. But they are just fuel tanks. They are permanent fixtures of the airplane. They are extra fuel tanks for longer-distance flying. So that is what struck the Viscount first on the left side of the fuselage. So to put this in perspective, they're flying parallel, but the T-33 was slightly to the left. So when it turned right, turned into the Viscount. Mm -hmm. That took me a while to understand, because I was like, they're parallel, but what way? <laughs> yep. The main section of the right tip tank of the T-33 then impacted the Viscount again, but below the forward entrance door. Then the wing impacted the fuselage, which destroyed the right wing of the T-33 and shattered the nose of the Viscount. The horizontal stabilizer of the T-33 then impacted the Viscount, causing further damage to both aircraft. From the damage, investigators were able to calculate, somehow, that the T-33 was flying 55 knots faster than the Viscount. Wow. Yep. From the wreckage and extrapolated flight directions and speeds, investigators also were able to figure out if and when each pilot could see the other aircraft. The co-pilot of the Viscount would not have been able to see the T-33 ever. The pilot, or the captain, would have had about 26 seconds before impact to see it, and could have known they were close, but could not have anticipated the T-33 making a right turn. Investigators also acknowledged that though the pilot could have seen the T-33, the trainer was behind the Viscount and the pilots would have been focused on the more critical area. In front of them? Yeah. Conversely, the T-33 pilot had no obstruction to seeing the Viscount for well over a minute. And that pretty much sums up all that investigators needed to know. The pilot in command of the T-33 failed to see and avoid the Viscount, despite having ample time to do so. Which is, again, if you're going to be VFR, you got to make sure that you're avoiding other aircraft. Yep. And this, Indeed. this isn't like today. Like, there's avoidance systems today. Mm -hmm. Like, when we fly with Brendan, he has this cool little thing that he hooks up to the airplane we'll, that you can see. As long as they have their transponder on, you can see them on the screen. Yeah, yeah. and we'll get more we'll, into that later. We'll talk a lot about that in a little bit. But they didn't have that. This is 1950s technology we're talking about. Yes. Now, you got to use your eyes. <laughs> I want to get yes. into one of the nuances that was mentioned in the report, which 
I felt was fairly obvious, but the more they went into it, I'm like, we should probably talk about this. Quote, Generally, if there is a ceiling of less than a thousand feet or visibility less than three miles in controlled airspace, an aircraft cannot be operated according to VFR. In addition, an aircraft, while operating in weather conditions above the minimum, may not be flown closer than 2,000 feet horizontally, 500 feet vertically underneath, or 1,000 feet vertically on top of the clouds. If the ceiling or visibility is less than these minimums, or these minimum distances from clouds cannot be assured, a pilot must operate in accordance with IFR. In addition, a pilot may elect to conduct his flight in accordance with IFR, even though weather conditions are above minimums. In this event, because the weather is above minimum, other aircraft can be operated according to VFR without the knowledge of air traffic control. Under these circumstances, the pilot operating in accordance with IFR is guaranteed separation only from other aircraft similarly operating according to VFR. He must, therefore, maintain the same degree of vigilance required during VFR operations to see and avoid other aircraft, end quote. So what does that mean in terms of this event? The Viscount was operating under IFR, but in VFR conditions. That means that they were guaranteed to have ATC provide separation between other aircraft also operating under IFR, but VFR planes could be around that aren't having the same air traffic control coordination, so any IFR flight would have to see and avoid VFR traffic even though they're flying IFR. That is ridiculous. Yes. I'm sorry. I realize, and I again, I realize this is 1950s and it's yeah. nothing like today because, again, this is not the case now. But right. you are already having to fly an aircraft and focus on everything to fly your aircraft. And then you're in IFR. So in reality, you're like, okay, then ATC should help me out. But when other people are not in IFR, then you also have to see and avoid. That's a lot of stuff to put on two pilots. So basically, you're having, you're, you have to have the same vigilance as if you were flying VFR. All the time. Yes. Which, on, for a person who's conducting an air, uh, flight on a quote-unquote commercial aircraft... Is a lot. Mm. That's a lot. We'll talk a little bit more about this, too, later. About how this was also affected. A lot has changed. A yes. lot, obviously. The investigators discussed what ATC calls positive control, where ATC provides separation between all aircraft regardless of weather conditions. From what I understand, the board between the accident and the report adopted regulations to implement positive control at high altitudes on specific routes. So, like, in busy airspaces like New York City. Right. It hadn't been done to this point because technology and construction limits expansion in right. a rapid amount of time. You can only expand a control tower's capability so quickly. But it's pretty clear that the Viscount had no idea the T-33 was there since positive control was not in place and the T-33 was behind them. So now kind of ad hoc, we're going to discuss right-of-way rules, just as you have them when you're driving on the road in a car, so too you also have an aircraft. Do you want to speak more to that, dear, since you know more? So in a right-of-way situation like this, the airplane that's overtaking... It's their responsibility to see and avoid the traffic ahead of them. Right. So they were responsible for watching out for the Viscount. The Viscount's on an IFR flight plan, and in theory, they still have some amount of right-of-way over VFR traffic. VFR traffic should still be trying to avoid any IFR traffic. But if you're within a certain 
Like, if you're in a VFR airspace and you're flying IFR, you still have a certain amount of sea and avoid responsibility, especially in VFR conditions. So there's a lot of rules around who has the right of way at any given time. And these days it varies by class of aircraft. So starting with an airship, an airship has a right of way over everything. Well, yeah, because airships are like blips. Yeah, more importantly... <laughs> they can't like, maneuver as fast as other aircraft Well, can. more importantly, hot air balloons are also considered oh, airships. Yes. And hot air balloons have no control over where they're going. That's oh, it. Because that's wind. Yep. That's what happens. They've got up and down. Yes. And it's not very quick. <laughs> so they have no ability to avoid. They can see, they just can't avoid. <laughs> so, that's terrible. Yep. So they have the right of way over everything. And then it goes up from there. There's a whole list. I mean, it's a long list of who has the right of way going up the line. But well, Gliders are pretty soon after airships yes. because... They don't have any propulsion. No. Right. They're just gliding. Right. They have some amount of steering. Yes, they do have a control. But even that's not fantastic. Yep. Then you generally have like VFR traffic, then it goes into IFR traffic, then it goes into heavies. But even within like VFR traffic, there's certain, like a helicopter has a certain right of way and light aircraft have certain right of way. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Like it depends on what class of aircraft you actually have. That's more what dictates who has the right of way. But in this case, we're talking about who had the right of way over who. Wouldn't the Viscount have right of way over the Yes and the military? I the only reason yes. I say that is because they were on a flight plan and the other one was not. Yes, Correct. and they can't see the T thirty three. Right. They never did. So they had no way of but knowing. But the T thirty three could see them. So yep. the T thirty three was in a position where they were supposed to yield. Right. Right. And did it. Which makes the most sense to me. Which really, for them, just means they could have changed course. Simple as that. Because they didn't have a flight plan. They right. literally could have gone anywhere. Yep. And they just weren't looking. They didn't, It's like when you try to change lanes and you don't check next to you before you change lanes. Yep. So, and then you almost hit a car and you're like, well, that was my fault. One of those big things that changed from a later accident also in the same part of the world was that you might remember we said that the, uh, or you said that the uh, T-33 was moving at 290 knots. And now we have speed limits. Yes. They're oh, at yeah, that's another big one. They're at 290 knots at 8,000 feet. Now, that, anytime, no. anytime, below your, anytime you're below 10,000 feet, 250 knots max. Yeah. So, that's another thing. Like, they were moving like crazy. They, they, were, they were wicked fast. Yeah, yeah. We, we talked about that in the New York collision. Yep. Yep. This was not a hard instance to figure out what happened. No. At all. It was really crappy, as happened with um, flight, Comair Flight 5191, where the person responsible, or persons, were the only survivors. Yes. It's yeah. unfortunate. That's all I got. All right. Well, we're going to take a very short brick break, and then we'll be back for findings. No findings. Oh. <laughs> Probable cause and... Conclusions. Recommendations. There's no recommendations. Nope. We'll talk about what changed, though. Okay. <laughs> We're back. Yep. Okay. Let's do some conclusions. <laughs> They're not findings. This is literally a summary of what they came up with. And then there's a very short cause at the end. So, we're, I'm just literally going to read this straight from the report, because it's a page long. This is a giant quote. Conclusions. 
From all the available evidence, the board concludes that the weather at the flight altitude was a VFR and that both aircraft would have been free from clouds about nine-tenths of the time without taking any action whatsoever. Nine-tenths of the time. That's really specific to me. It's 90%. Yes. It is also evident that Captain McCoy, from his overtaking position, had ample opportunity to see the Viscount ahead of him and take evasive action. No unusual cockpit distractions or structural limitations to visibility preclude him from maintaining a lookout from other traffic. The board believes that Captain McCoy was not exercising the normal lookout for other aircraft required and expected of him. Had he done so, this accident might well have been avoided. Conversely, the board does not believe the Viscount pilot's failure to see the T-33 in the 26 seconds which it could have been seen is evidence of a failure to maintain a normal vigilance. 26 seconds isn't very long, and that 26 seconds periods of time, they were already, they'd already been impacted for part of that. But also, it was behind them. Right. It is not normally expected for an IFR flight of a commercial flight right. to be looking behind you. Right. Even if you could have seen it, like, out the window behind you, like kind of to the side behind you, it's not expected. It wasn't their job to be looking for anything behind them. The board is mindful of a current consensus concerning the obsolescence of the visual flight rules. We recognize the fact that these views frequently involve generalizations based upon assumptions of extremely high closure rates. However, Prohibitively, high aircraft closure rates were not involved in this accident. A requirement still exists for the continuation of visual flight rules substantially as contained in the present civil air regulations for the large majority of aircraft operations, such as those with which we are here concerned. With this, all responsible spokesmen for the principal airspace users, including military and civil, are in agreement. Emphasis must again be made, therefore, on the fact that the obligation to see and avoid other aircraft under visual flight rules conditions constitutes a condition precedent to the use of navigable airspace. So they're literally putting that whole see and avoid thing out there as this is what you're supposed to do and you didn't. This responsibility cannot be evaded by allegations that the civil air regulations are inadequate or obsolete or that air traffic control procedures which allow visual flights are improper. Accordingly, the air traffic rules clearly establish that failure to maintain a constant vigilance for other air traffic endangers the lives and property of others, and therefore constitutes a disregard for the safety of other users of the airspace. A corresponding responsibility flows upon the operator agency, which must maintain vigorous training and indoctrination, programs in which cockpit vigilance is the subject of continuous emphasis and surveillance and in which failure to maintain such vigilance is subject to effective corrective action. Subsequent to this accident, the Air Force published directives requiring that the operation of all aircraft along airways between 10,000 and 20,000 feet be according to IFR. That's fine and dandy, except this flight was below that. However, pilots may accept VFR climb or descent restrictions. In addition, some Air Force commands have imposed further restrictions on locally-based jet aircraft, which essentially preclude their operation below 20,000 feet under visual flight rules. Since this accident, Capital Airlines has required that all its flights be conducted according to the procedures set out for the, quote, Golden Triangle, end quote, 
i.e. aircraft above 9,500 feet on airways must be operated according to IFR. BFR restrictions on climb and descent will not be accepted above this altitude. That still wouldn't have affected this flight and this crash. So that's it for the conclusions. Goodness gracious. Now for a very short probable cause. The board determines the probable cause of this accident was the failure of the T-33 pilot to exercise a proper and adequate vigilance to see and avoid other traffic. Boom. Yep. Done. So, that's it in a nutshell, but let's talk about some of the big things that changed from this. Not just from this accident, but since then. So, I'm going to talk about some general things first, and then we'll talk about the systems that are in place now. Literally, electronic systems that are in place now. Number one thing is that airline traffic does not generally take place in any sort of VFR airspace, per se. Don't they have, like, their own classification of airspace? Basically. So, you'll note that most airliners, if not all, generally fly above 18,000 feet Yes. for their cruising. That's because above 18,000 feet, it's IFR required. So... They developed aircraft that would fly above 18,000 feet and fast so that, I mean, this was an easy way to stay out of VFR traffic. Put them all up high where they're required to be IFR on routes, on flight plans that and are air cleared. And air traffic control is responsible for maintaining separation. Right, and they can do that up there. It's much easier because there's no VFR traffic in their way. I have a question. Yep. So when you have military aircraft, like mm -hmm. let's say a C-130, right? Sure. Going somewhere, but it cannot be viewed on radar for certain reasons. Mm -hmm. How do they avoid traffic? It is their responsibility to do so. And the military has their own form of tracking these flights to make sure that they don't interfere with anybody. So that's a whole nother thing. But most of the time, these aircraft will st still show up on radar when they're over any kind of civilian airspace. Rarely will they turn off any kind of radar visuals. They so. just, like, if you ever see military air, you, I don't know, We I, I don't remember seeing military aircraft on, like, flight radar or whatever. Yeah. But we when we do, it doesn't tell you where it's right. going. It just we tells you it's there. We won't see them on any kind of public website or anything. Obviously. But air traffic radars can usually spot them. There and are a few occasions where they can make that not happen. I do believe they're not required to have ADSB, which is one of the systems we will talk about. They are not required, but it does require special permits for them to be filed for the specific aircraft in order to have that in place. Like, it's not just a blanket for all military. They do still have to have that specifically in place for the aircraft. So that's a whole other thing. But in any case, most of the time, those are still very controlled situations, and there's a lot of oversight that goes into that these days the other thing is when you're in an airliner and you're descending there is only a very small period of time that you might be flying through vfr traffic and in vfr airspace where you might encounter a vfr aircraft and this situation is still few and far between most of the time when you're in an airliner, you're descending from quite a high altitude, and then by the time you get down to a low enough altitude where most VFR traffic exists, you're in the airspace of a major airport, airport wherever your destination is. Like they, out by DIA right, they, and uh, Front Range if or you've ever, Spaceport. Exactly. If you've ever looked at the airspace for a large airport like... DIA? Yeah, Denver International Airport. It has a very large... Class B airspace ring. Or Bravo. Yes, Bravo. 
that stretches all the way out really far from the airport. And if you looked at it in a 3D view, it looks like an upside-down cake, wedding cake. That, so it's yeah. got steps. And it does that because the aircraft descend through those steps lower and lower as you get closer to the airport. They do that on purpose so that VFR traffic doesn't fly through their route. And if you do, you get in a lot of trouble. A lot. Yeah, so using Denver International as an example, there is a quite small airport right outside of the Bravo airspace they for Denver. Made, they made a little like cutout in the very bottom ring of the Bravo at Denver just for that airport. It's got a little L so that it's got its own airspace. And literally when you're doing the pattern there, there's a road that you cannot cross over. You fly directly over or beside because on the other side of that road is the Bravo airspace. So as part of the pattern, you fly right up along that road and then turn in for landing for a short final. So it's, you know, these airspaces exist for a reason. I mean, it keeps you out of the way of the IFR traffic. Airplanes fly higher, they fly faster, and they're able to do so in a safe way in IFR airspace. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't fly through the Bravo. You just have to do it with permission. Right. Like, there are times, like, when it's dead at DIA... Mm-hmm. That pilots who take off out of spaceport, which is that t- small airport we were talking about, mm-hmm. can call in to ATC and be like, hey, it's dead. Can I come, right. like, do touch and goes <laughs> at <Right>. DIA? Yeah, <laughs> as long as you get permission, they'll let you do it. But Right. Um, but a lot of – so spaceport has a flight school. So a lot of the students there get very good practice with avoiding busting through the Bravo. Right. Or you can be like the – we saw on i think it was vegas was it vegas that blew through the bravo yeah that's one november romeo yeah if anybody if anybody's heard that because that's i mean it floats all over i'll try to i'll try to remember to put it on the website website because the air traffic controller calls him and goes get out of my airspace and he's like give me the clearance for the bravo and she's like no get out of my airspace and then he just says no (laughs) He got in an enormous amount of trouble for that. No kidding, because he should. Don't we now have a shirt on our website that says you're violating my airspace? Yes. Yeah, so there you go. Anyways. So having Bravo airspace is a huge deterrent for mid-air collisions between GA traffic and commercial commercial traffic. traffic, Yeah, Big planes and smaller planes. So now let's talk about some much more recent technology. That has fixed a lot of the other problems that might rise from this. We've talked about them a little bit in the past, but we'll talk about them more now. So the first one I want to bring up is called the Traffic Collision Avoidance System, or... TCAS. Yep. So we've talked about this a couple times before, but I do want to just go through it again for anyone who might be new. We're getting a lot of new listeners, and I just want to make sure everyone's up to speed. So within... All commercial aircraft, I hesitate to say, but I think all for all the United most, States commercial aircraft. For the most part, any transport category aircraft there we go. specifically. That flies through the United States and other ICAO countries. Because there are some that don't have it. Yes. Yes. This is a system that is implemented where if two planes are on a collision course, or an interception course, if you will, the system tcas will tell one plane to ascend and the other plane to descend they talk to each other like tcas is talk to each other right and to this point because of a previous episode uh uberlingen the 
air traffic control is not supposed to interfere with whatever TCAS says. Right. If they have a TCAS warning, TCAS takes precedence at this point because it is a very smart system. It is communicating with one airplane and the other. If they are going to impact one another, if that's they're going to intersect, then it is telling one airplane to do one thing and the other to do the opposite. And that's important. So yep. that's fitted on anything over 12,600 pounds that is operating as a transport category. So, and that's within the ICAO countries. Yes. Because, like I said, there are a few countries out there that do not right. fly, like, in two ICAO control countries. Right. So they don't have to have it. But so, if you fly, like, if they, if you were in one of those countries and then they try to fly to the United States, they have to have TCAS. So this affects primarily IFR aircraft and a very, very, very small portion of VFR. This is primarily how IFR traffic can avoid one another in the event that ATC either isn't present or makes a mistake makes a mistake or isn't paying attention then this is how this allows the aircraft to avoid one another and this has been a very successful system thus far yes so now for the even newer successful system we now have automatic dependent surveillance broadcast or ADSB. ADSB. Yes. Which is what Brendan uses. Yes. And now it's actually, there's a lot of rules around this and little loopholes still, but most VFR traffic within the United States, and now it's starting to go, and now it's starting to become a thing around the world, too, that the ADSB is becoming a lot more standard as a requirement for aircraft, even as small as a Cessna 172. Which is it what? Is, Right. It is <laughs> it is not required for most light aircraft and it's not required for certain a certain category of very light aircraft. That doesn't mean they don't have them. It is a very no. good idea to have it. It is and actually a lot of people are like, "No, this is great. They've made it pretty affordable." As a matter of fact, here in the US, um the FAA basically created a program, a rebate program where if you install an ADSB out only it's only the only requirement. An ADSB out transponder, then that would at ver at minimum get you a rebate from the FAA that would pay for part of or most of that system being because there was a certain time period where it had to be in place. And then if you have an ADSB in, you can receive ADSB data from right. other aircraft and have them spawn either on your GPS or in a lot of instances, right. which is very common. You have an iPad that connects via Bluetooth to your avionics, and so those aircraft will appear on whatever app you're using. Right. Which is what Brendan does. Yes. And the, yes. And so it's a lot more user-friendly because it can literally be seen on an iPhone, on a, on a tablet, on literally the GPS in the cockpit, and it's just like a rudimentary form of TCAS. It doesn't tell the other aircraft what to do, but it allows you to have a lot more visual and on the traffic around you. And see where they are. Well, right. because see and avoid, it sounds great and all, but that's It hard. is very hard. You don't realize how hard it is until you're in a small aircraft going, there is something right, the spec right there, that's another aircraft. Right. Well, and you'll see something on the iPad, for example, and you're like, I see it there. I don't actually That's see happened it. So, so many times. So many so times. So, Brendan and I went flying a little over a week ago, and when we did, there were two occasions where we had traffic getting very close to us, and we never saw either one of them. But we saw them on the ADSB. 
And when that happened, I mean, we were getting really, really close to one that was going perpendicular to our path. Oh. And it was going much faster than we were. So we knew it was something larger than us. So... And that ADS-B data doesn't only tell your location. It also says your altitude. So right. you can see in terms of other aircraft it tells you how, how close. It tells you how far above and below. And both him and I were staring at an aircraft that was about to cross our path at zero. Which means they're at the same altitude. Oh, Jesus. So him and I, you know, we were looking around, looking around, looking around. And then we're getting to this uncomfortably close point, And I said, because it was coming from the right. So that was from my side of the aircraft. And I look and I said, no visual. And he said, no visual, and we just did a hard right 360 to make sure that this aircraft had time to cross our path while we were doing this 360, and then we would pass behind them. And that's exactly what we did. Never saw them. That's terrifying. That is terrifying. But that is how useful ADS-B is, is that it allowed us to get ourselves out of a situation that we may not have ever even known. it could have been a collision right yeah. we may not have ever even known we were in that situation until it was too late but these days we knew well in advance and we were able to take action and this was not the only time that him and i have had to do that either but adsb definitely made that really useful and most vfr pilots these days carry an ipad because they're so cheap to have and you can get the little adsb receivers or you can use the ones that are fixed in most aircraft they will bluetooth to a tablet and it's so cheap and easy to use for pilots these days, it almost makes no sense at all to not have it. Now, that being said, it does make it equally scary that there are some aircraft that don't have it. And if you're relying solely on that ADSB, there might be something that you should be seeing and, and avoiding. And that's exactly why see and avoid still exists. See and avoid is still the right answer every time. If you can find that traffic out the window, that's the better option. We, we've come to a point where ADS-B is very, very, very useful, and it's become a very great safety tool. But it does not, it is not 100% effective. It's not the be-all, end-all. No. Oh, You're, and the, because some aircraft don't have it. Mm-hmm. It is still your responsibility to see and avoid the other traffic. Now, for those of us laymen who are not pilots, you can still be involved in the network that is ADS-B. Many of you probably have at least looked at at some point whether on the news or on your own personal device the app or similar apps flight radar 24 yep highly recommend by the way highly recommend that's what we use there's also apps like open adsb which is only available on apple and i won't get into that debate right now you can also go on your computer and there's a free one called adsb exchange you can also look at flight radar 24 on your browser yep So that particular app relies on people throughout the country having ADS-B... Transponders. Transponders in their own homes. Yeah, in this case case it would be just a receiver. Yes, just a receiver. But you would pick up that data on behalf of Flight Radar 24. This is not an ad. And you would get, I think it's a free membership to their premium service. You do, yes. And actually that's because that data is used by flight radar and they appreciate it. It helps them, but it's also, you can actually be part of the FAA's network. Basically they're creating that allows this ADSB traffic to be tracked all the time. Because when you're in VFR out in the middle of nowhere, that transponder might be transmitting to basically nothing. Right. And so now they're, they're basically making it really easy to create this very cheap network that they're creating. And they're doing it on their own too. 
where it'll track ADSB across the entire country. And a lot of other countries are starting to do this too. They're creating networks of these ADSB receivers that then will give that data to the traffic systems across the country, and they're usable as well for avoiding traffic to anybody. So you too can help in the aviation safety industry. Right. This also helps in the event, um, another useful little feature is small aircraft, very light aircraft. If they're, for some reason, their ELT doesn't work or their ELT stops working or doesn't exist, and they go down out in the middle of nowhere, most of the time it can take a very long time before they figure that out. But if you have that ADSB data... Then there is a slightly higher chance. It's not said Great. because it's not a... If you didn't file a flight plan, then they have no reason to call you for an emergency. You could have landed somewhere. It doesn't matter to them. But if there's somebody tracking your flight, which it is always a great idea to tell somebody where you're going and whatnot. And tell them your tail number, unlike yes. somebody who didn't tell me until he was basically home. Brendan already told his family, so I wasn't worried about it. But yes. You should probably just text it to the group. So we know. But <laughs> yes. Just but give me the view, not just you. But <laughs> but anyways, so point being is that it's always a good idea to tell somebody. And that's part of this too, is like, just tell somebody where you're going, where you're going to be. That way, these days, you can track that pretty easily in one of these flight radar or flight aware or what have you. And make sure that they make it to where they're going and that they make it back, whatever it be. And that they don't disappear from radar. Because then it is not your responsibility, but you have the ability to maybe... Call the authorities. Get the situation solved and, and maybe save their lives if something goes wrong. Yep. Well, okay. That, that was Capital Airlines Flight 300. Yeah. Thanks for listening to another mid-air collision. <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, at least this one was... So long ago that it's not like a, a a malfunction of like the airplane or anything, you know, because sometimes right. that happens and it makes me feel sad because it's like Uberlingen was like a giant mess mm-hmm. of things. Yes. This was literally just someone not looking, which isn't great either. I'm not saying that's good. No, no. Any kind of collisions horrifying. It's also it was also a good chance for us to highlight safety features. Right. Yep. Thanks to all our patrons. As always, you guys are amazing and awesome. And thank you to the rest of you. Yes. All our listeners. You guys are awesome. Remember to share us with friends and family. Subscribe. Give us a, a review. This is the the holiday season. So feel free to binge with your family. Yeah. If you feel so inclined. Thanks, everybody. We hope you had a great holiday season, whether you celebrate or not. And have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast, and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.